Join me today on our journey down the coding canal where the water's always azure blue. I'm your host, Jesse Daher Canal. Cameron uh, Vetters joining us um, for uh, the coding canal uh, this week. And uh, Cameron has an impressive resume, um, has been coding ever since he got a Commodore 64 as a kid. Um, he worked his way up from refurbishing Apple computers to uh, now a principal architect uh, at the Octavian Technology Group. It has a long history of developing outstanding solutions using a variety of cool technologies. Definitely jealous of all the stuff that he's used. Um, He's a Microsoft MVP, uh, regularly hosts Azure and AI sessions for the Milwaukee Azure User Group and the Milwaukee Global AI Group. Uh, together with some other MVPs, he wrote the book, uh, Microsoft AI MVP Book, A Practical Guide to Microsoft AI, uh, written by 17 AI and Azure MVPs from all around the world, uh, which was released in 2019. Uh, you can find it on Amazon. Um, but coolest of all, he's a fellow Centurion, um, <laughs> which is where I work now, although these days it's known as RSI. Um, and uh, yeah, honored to have you on the show. Uh, thanks for accepting my invitation. And uh, yeah, did I miss anything there? No, that sounds great. Thanks for the, the great introduction. And it's uh, it's great to be on the show. And yeah, Centaria has a special place in my heart and uh, always will. It was my first foray into consulting and uh, it was really an excellent start. And I worked with so many amazing people there and I, I still talk to so many people that I met in my time there and uh, kind of uh, built a, a whole bunch of skills that has taken me forward in my career. Yeah, um, was I think because Tim's been there the whole time, right? Yes, yes. Tim was yeah. Tim was very much there. He was uh, just another consultant at the time, uh, oh, okay. along with myself. And uh, yeah, uh, we we were working together, and uh, still see him on occasion and talk to him. And nice. uh, cool. Um, so yeah, kind of one of the so I, I guess to set the stage of like ideas that I had to talk about. Um, I did have a question about the book. Um, I know um, some of the MVP um, stuff, just talking about different topics related to um, Microsoft MVP award would be cool. Um, touching into the Octavian Technology Group a bit um, would be kind of interesting and give you a chance to talk about that. Um, and then kind of more of the main topic being about like architecture, um, software architecture and cloud architecture in general. Okay. Um, that sounds great. Yeah. See how far we get there. So, um, and so, yeah, uh, first question I had was, uh, for the book, what's it like writing a book with 17 other people? To me, that sounds like it'd be a big spaghetti trying to. Uh, it, it was, it was very challenging and there was uh, one of the MVPs kind of the person she uh, she kind of was the, the the creator of the idea of putting this book together she kind of played project manager as well and okay. did the the herding of the cats to get us all coordinated and get get us all um, on board but yeah it was really interesting and you know I, I don't think I would do it again, to be honest, because of the some of the challenges that were involved. Um, you know, the, the struggle that I had with the final result is that it was um, it was like more like seventeen small books put together okay. than it was necessarily like having one one consistent book. Yeah. <clears throat> and a lot of the information was really useful. I mean, there were some great benefits. Like I had other MVPs reviewing the stuff that I wrote and I was reviewing for them. That's so cool. we, we all had really good reviewers on hand that were very qualified, which is one of the challenges when you write a book. Um, mm -hmm. 
So I've been kind of in the mix on books uh, a few different times over my years. And, uh, you know, the, the big challenges with books are really finding the time, finding the reviewers, getting the right editor in place and uh, putting it all together. And this was that same problem times 17. Um, yeah. But, um, but anyway, yeah, we, we put that together and we actually did that book um, and released it. So if you do purchase that book, you all, all the proceeds are going to charity. Oh, um, cool. None of us are receiving any of the compensation for it. Uh, we did it really as uh, kind of to support Microsoft AI. Um, mm -hmm. what, at the point that we did that, the concept of an MVP and AI, I think that was about a year old at that point, or maybe two years old. It was, it was fairly new. Um, so it was one of the things we did to kind of support the space. Um, at the, at the time that I first got my MVP, I was the sixth person in the United States to get one for AI. Okay. So it was like very, very early. And now if you look, there's, I think there's almost a hundred of us in the United States and even more worldwide, but. Who is the audience for the book um, and kind of what's it covering? Well, the, the book, and that's kind of what I meant by 17 different books put together. Mm -hmm. uh, there's really almost 17 different audiences. So it really, um, I would think of it as kind of a broad introduction to all the different little corners of AI within Microsoft products. Um, the, the section that I wrote was about um, how to do Python development within VS Code. At the time I wrote that, that was still a fairly undocumented situation. Uh, now it's got beautiful, elegant tool chain and everything is, I'm, in my opinion, it's the first class way of doing Python these days is using VS Code. But at the time it was still kind of almost beta type of plugin for VS Code. And there were a lot of rough corners and it was very difficult to get going on. Oh, so that was the section I wrote, but you'll find stuff um, about um, AutoML, which was very early at the time. You'll find mm -hmm. stuff about working within Azure and Azure ML, find stuff about doing visual uh, machine learning within the um, within Azure ML as well, how to do it within, how to use ML within Power BI, which was also just... Uh, just a, a new concept at the time. So it, it's really an attempt to just uh, provide an introduction to all of the different areas. So if if you were to, if a person was to pick up the book, it's a great way to get, get an idea of everything that was there. Um, and then it could be a good place to start to figure out where do you want to dig deeper if you're, you're wanting to learn about machine learning and within the Microsoft stack. Okay, cool. Um, so yeah, getting into um, the MVP award, um, I guess I was kind of wondering what does it mean to be an MVP and what role do they play in the community? Yeah, the well, it is very community focused, so that's a really, um, really great that you brought that up. The but yeah, the the role of an, a Microsoft MVP is to um, is somebody that's really active in the community and around Microsoft products, and this has gotten to be a lot easier of a space to to get involved in, in my opinion, anyway. If you go back a number of years before Microsoft really embraced open source, you were very, very narrowly focused into the only the stuff coming out of Microsoft, but now a lot of the stuff that that I'm involved in in the community is actually open source projects and stuff that isn't very Microsoft focused. I mean, when I'm doing machine learning, more often than not, I'm using either uh, running on top of Linux or running, um, you know, I'm, I'm rarely just in a, a very strictly Microsoft stack, mm -hmm. but uh, you know, the way that they've embraced in recent years, it makes it a lot easier to be an MVP and really get involved in the spaces that you want to be involved in. But when, when I actually got my MVP originally, I was really focused on TensorFlow, which is a Google product, right? That's a Google open source project. And, mm -hmm. um, and, but I was really, um, 
where I was specializing was how do you actually use this tooling within Microsoft and within the Azure uh, platform. And still to this day, that's a big thing that I do with machine learning is using TensorFlow and Keras, but I'm doing all of it within Microsoft Azure and using Azure ML as a platform. But anyway, coming back to your original question, yeah, we um, a Microsoft MVP is going to be somebody that's making a significant contribution into the community. Um, and, you know, it's it's not just about being a cheerleader all the time. It's about actually making a contribution. And in fact, once you're kind of in the mix of being an MVP and interacting with the other MVPs, um, I would go so far as to say that sometimes we give the product teams a pretty hard time within Microsoft and really give them some hard feedback. But that's an important part of what we do is we represent the community. It's not just that we're out there being a cheerleader within the community but we're actually bringing feedback into Microsoft and uh, giving them the, the positive and the negative feedback. And, um, you know, I think that's really beneficial and it's really cool the way that Microsoft has embraced the idea of that because we don't, I've never been shut down for giving negative feedback. And in fact, usually they'll, the product teams will engage with me more deeply and try to get more information of why I have those negative feelings or where that's coming from within the community. And I know it's, so I've been an MVP almost three years now, and I, I've, there's actually places where I know that I made a difference as far as changing the direction in the product team. That's cool. Uh, and the, the stuff that they're doing. So, yeah. And to me, the most rewarding part about it, you know, initially was, being a part of the community and being that MVP in the community and helping to talk about the products. But as I've, as I've done it more, the most rewarding part is really the digging in with the product teams and getting involved. And, mm -hmm. you know, just in the last couple of months, I was involved uh, with uh, the Azure ML product team and the the team that does the SDK for AutoML within uh, Azure Machine Learning. And uh, I had found a, a regression within the product where um, we're starting about 20 versions ago uh, within the SDK, there was something that just no longer worked right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I ran across it because it was impacting the work I was doing at a client. Mm -hmm. But um, because I had the connection into the product team, I ended up working probably for six weeks with the product team, uh, going back and forth, doing repros back and forth, trying things for them. And we actually got to the bottom of it and it ended up getting pushed into production really fast because it, it turned out to be a regression that was impacting um, a huge part of the customer base and nobody had noticed it because it might only negatively impact your ML model and make it a couple percent less accurate. Mm -hmm. uh, in my case, it was making my model 10% less accurate. So it was a huge wow. red flag when I ran across it. But stuff like that is really rewarding and really cool. And um, that's the stuff that I've been really feeding on. Um, you know, the, the, the part I can say that I miss the most in, in current times is the getting out there at conferences. Mm -hmm. um, you know, being there in person, interacting with people. I've done a lot of speaking um, at conferences online, and it just isn't the same. Um, mm -hmm. is to me that the part I enjoy the most isn't me giving a talk mm -hmm. for 50 minutes. It's the part that comes afterwards when I get to talk to the people that were in attendance or, and make new yeah. connections, make new friends in the industry. That, that stuff I miss a lot. And uh, being an MVP kind of has a little bit of a privilege when you're doing that stuff because it's a little bit, uh, people are more apt to try and connect with me to talk to me about stuff because i'm an mvp mm -hmm. so i was really enjoying that pre pre-covid and i look forward to getting back to yeah. to that situation again because that that to me is um one of the greatest part about going to a conference is actually that meeting other people interacting and uh you yeah. know building those relationships yeah i mean i've seen like at ignite they have like some open spaces where like you could um, have some questions and stuff like that and try to engage with speakers, but it's tough, you know, especially when you got like the whole audio issues sometimes. And then right. 
you know, it's got to be curated because otherwise you get people talking over each other and it's, it's not the same. That's for sure. No, it really isn't. And as a speaker, it's not the same either. I, I, the last two talks I gave, uh, I won't say where they were because it doesn't bode well for either of them, but one of them I gave and three people were in attendance. And I had visibility that three people had showed up for my talk and I still gave the talk and it was a good talk, a good interaction and they recorded it. So hopefully others gained from it. So then I gave that same talk at a different conference and I had no visibility into the audience. I thought I was speaking to an empty room and it turned out later that there were over 700 people oh, wow. in the talk. And I mean, but that kind of thing, I, how how much less could I interact with my audience to not even know how many people were listening to me, let yeah. alone actually taking questions and discussion. So if I'd had that kind of an audience in real life in person, I would have probably spent the rest of the day chatting with people uh, mm -hmm. uh, in person and, you know, talking about all sorts of fun stuff. And uh, yeah, but anyway. Yeah. Yeah, it might be kind of nice for people who are really <laughs> nervous when they see lots of people, but I could see where just, you know, if you get no interaction whatsoever when you're giving a talk, that's kind of tough. And it uh, yeah, it's, it's to. extremely difficult. I, I've always been a, I, I don't prepare anything for my talks besides PowerPoint slides to guide me through. And normally I just feed off the audience. If the audience looks bored, I change direction. If the audience looks confused, I stop and dig in. Yeah. If the audience, you know, I, I try and respond and react. And you can't do that when you're speaking online. So I feel like I'm a, I'm not nearly as good of a speaker online as I am in person. But yeah. hopefully yeah. we'll get back to it soon. Yeah, yeah. Um, so for the MVP award, how does someone get chosen? Um, what do they have to do if they're kind of seeking the MVP award. Yeah, if you'd like to become an MVP, the first thing you need to do is get nominated to be an MVP. It's, it's usually done by somebody else that they make an MVP nomination. There's a form actually on Microsoft's website that you can fill out, and it's it's a rather long form. So somebody has to be really... Somebody has to really mean it to go and do it. It isn't something you can just go click into. It's they're going to spend a half hour filling out a form for you. But you can also self-nominate. I I I think it's preferred that if you somebody else nominates you instead of self-nominating. But yeah. either way, once once that happens, you're actually nominated to become an MVP. And then what Microsoft asks is that you start building an online resume of your community activities. Mm -hmm. So and what, what we'll do is we'll put down details about the stuff that we're doing out there in the community, the contributions we're making, and what areas within Microsoft they tie back to. Mm -hmm. um, and then every now and then, periodically, those are reviewed. Usually about every month or two, the teams will review those. And um, uh, if you make it through the, the first couple of filters, eventually you'll end up with the actual program managers within the space. So for me, it's the program managers within machine learning. So they'll review my application and they decided that I was making a positive enough impact that they then awarded me an MVP. Okay. So once you've got it, you're an MVP for a year. And then every July, you have an opportunity to get renewed. And that basically means going through that same resume again, and they'll review it. But this time they're not reviewing it to decide whether or not you should become part of the ecosystem. It's whether or not you should stay within the ecosystem. So it's a little bit different of a filter that they apply. And uh, a lot of the contributions that I make currently, probably half of them are things that are not externally facing, but only stuff that Microsoft sees because it's interactions with the product team. Okay. But then if, if if they feel like you're still a contributing member of the community, then you'll get another award. And um, But it, yeah, that's kind of the process that you go through. A lot of it is not very visible, to be honest. It's kind of behind the scenes, but we have the general idea of that that's mm -hmm. what is going on. 
Um, and so, yeah, you, you went all in on uh, AI and, and ML. Um, how did you choose to do that? Because um, I noticed in your resume that wasn't always the case. It seems like more of a recent thing. Yeah, well, I mean, as as a technologist, I've been, I think I, last time I looked, it's 22 years now that I've been in the Microsoft stack. So I, it's always evolving kind of my focus in my area. I, rarely do I just say, oh, suddenly I'm going to change into this type of, it's more something that slowly evolves over time. And yeah, so I, I actually did not get nominated to be an AI MVP. I got nominated to be a mixed reality MVP by someone else in the community. And that person's actually a, uh, a PM inside Microsoft now for, uh, for the, one of the HoloLens teams. Okay. That, uh, so he was the person that nominated me and... Um, I didn't get uh, didn't get in right away, and that's pretty typical. That after six or nine months, I still hadn't received an award. But uh, my interests actually moved away from the mixed reality space, mm-hmm. and I was getting heavily involved in the machine learning space for other reasons, career related reasons, not MVP reasons. So one of my friends, that's an MVP, made the suggestion of, "Well, why don't you, you know, start focusing more in on." Um, the machine learning stuff as far as what you're doing in the community that mm-hmm. since that aligns with what you're doing in your career now. And uh, I did that and that's how I kind of got on board and became um, an MVP for AI. So it wasn't really the path I started down, but it's where I ended up and it worked out really well because my, my real world day job has actually turned into probably 75% machine learning and in that space and it's nice to have the things line up together so that things are the stuff i'm working on um community wise is in good alignment with what i'm doing in my career so it's just nice to have them all kind of weave nicely together like that speaking of kind of your work and and what you do day to day um right now you're um, a principal architect at octavian technology group um, and I was just kind of reading their website. Um, it seems that they're focused on building custom solutions, um, advising businesses through use of machine learning, cloud architecture, DevOps, um, and fractional CIO and CTO services. Um, is that kind of a good summarization of what they do? It, it, it's decent. It, it's really hard to kind of explain what we do, but I'll take a crack at it. We're, we're focused on the idea of more the um, being an advisor and a partner in technology. And I think our sweet spot that's developed in the last couple of years is the that we have a lot of deep business experience and we combine that with the deep technology. Um, to, typically, you'll find folks that are really good in the technology, but they might not know how to navigate uh, within a large corporation, how to you know deal with some of the issues that happen there, or how to navigate a product and launching a product, and or how to enhance a product, or how to evaluate the market and decide what technology is actually something you should chase after versus something that uh, sounds really good on paper, but you probably won't do much for your bottom line. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where where we focus and we, we try to be that higher level consulting. And then we also bring the execution engine that goes along with it. But we're, we typically uh, do a lot of our, our consulting in leading edge types of things. Um, I would say Probably the most exciting ones we've done. We've done a couple mixed reality, and we have a, a bunch of machine learning ones uh, that we've done, as well as ones that we're working on right now. And um, but all of them are, are you know, that's the technology. All of them are really rooted in the idea of well, how do we help make your business a better place, and how do we actually enhance your business? So the the means that we get there, I don't think is as important as just uh, kind of the goal and uh, 
being able to measure, and you know, this would be advice I would give to any consultant, is if you want to really elevate your consulting game, don't get so bogged down in technology or that I'm going to build you the best X, Y, or Z. Instead, get bogged down in how I'm going to build you something that's going to have a positive impact on your business and be able to actually explain to the customer how you're going to improve their business before you even get started, right? I should be able to say that um, this this work that I'm going to do for you, it's going to have this impact on your bottom line and you're going to see this across this number of years and it's going to cost you this much to do. So you should be able to make a very easy decision versus what I often see in consulting as I see companies come in there and say, well, you should do this technology, it'll make your website cooler or it'll make it really neat and it'll add this feature and I bet your customers want that. But never being able to actually identify for a fact, you know, what the the impact is going to be. And I think that's really important too when you get to the end of a project is being able to measure that success and be able to say, this is what we thought was going to happen. This is what actually happened. So let's talk about why that was. And it helps you queue up kind of what the next things you should be working on. Oftentimes where, uh, where Octavian will start is helping people develop a roadmap versus just trying to execute one little thing on a roadmap. We'll try and help uh, build a strategic roadmap for in an area for a company related to how they're going to deploy technology. So I think that that's kind of uh, what Octavian is about. So yeah, the stuff on our website is really great and we do do all that technology and we do that type of consulting. But the, if you get down to the root of what we really do, it's uh, really understanding your business and helping you plan out what you should be doing in your business and what's going to have the biggest impact, um, whether it's positive impact on your customer base, saving money, uh, building a new product line, whatever it happens to be that you're trying to do. How do you figure out, you know, how much um, some project or, or maybe a, a technology kind of turned into a project is going to save them? Um, do you have kind of like case studies of this is what we've done before and we saw, you know, some 25% customer engagement increase or something like that, or, or do you do some sort of, um, kind of like test run, uh, like POC type thing first, or how does that work? All of the above. Um, it really depends on the situation. Um, oftentimes we can dig into the business and we, we try to engage at uh, the C-level typically. So we're usually working with a, a CTO, a CIO, a CFO. So that gives us access to some of the numbers typically. Okay. So we're usually looking at real numbers of the revenue of the company, the cost of various things, whatever happens to be relevant to what we're working on at that moment. Um, and we're, we're trying to identify it. A, a great example, um, one, of the, one of our current clients we're working with, um, we, we took a look at one of their processes and we're injecting machine learning into that process to, uh, to basically do some decisioning that was being done by people that was um, decisioning that was pretty cut and dry, right? Something that you could, you could build an understanding of and automate with some machine learning. So, um, so to figure out, you know, what, what the bang for the buck was going to be there, we had to figure out, okay, how many people are doing this work currently? How much are they getting paid? So then we know what that cost is over the year for that company. Then, um, if we make this improvement, well, how much will it reduce their work? Um, so for this company, what they wanted to do is eliminate people out of these positions and reassign them to work that uh, was uh, was more beneficial and something that was less kind of repetitive and kind of rinse repeat. Mm -hmm. So basically, we treated it as though their cost goes away when we calculated it because they're now getting reassigned to bigger and better things within their company. Mm -hmm. So we could definitively say, okay, if we get 
X, Y, and Z done, and we get it done with this accuracy rate, then that means that we can eliminate the need for these three people. So then we have a cost because now their salary is basically a cost savings because they were reassigned to work on other things that uh, needed to be done anyway. So, you know, that that's an example, but that's just, that's not a cookie cutter recipe. That was situational based on what we were working on there. Other times it's completely different. Sometimes it's looking at products and understanding, um, you know, within this particular product that we're looking at, how can we apply new technology? Well, what is the revenue you're making from that product? What does the entire market look like? So what are all your competitors out there? What's your market share? And based on off of that, we can back into uh, the value of the entire market as a whole, right? If we know what market share each of the competitors has, what market share they have and what revenue they have, we know what potential revenue is out there. Then we can take a look at, you know, if we did X, Y, or Z based on market research, and that's kind of a fuzzy term, I realize, but that's something you have to dig into. It's not something you're going to just uh, look up on Google. That's something you're going to have to do some research and take a look at. But, you know, take it, doing the market research to figure out what the expected impact is. And in that case, it might be a range, right? You might say, well, if we add this feature, um, we expect to see a 5 to 10% increase in market share. Well, that's something now that you can quantify and you can put that against what is probably a range for the project work anyway. Uh, as a consultant, I'm sure you know that you're never going to say, well, this will take exactly this amount of time <laughs> and this will cost you this precise amount of money. It's almost always a range that you end up giving. So mm -hmm. it, you, you should be able to look at the range of the cost versus the range of the additional profit and be able to say, well, this is this is good bang for the buck. Usually when we do it, we look over a three-year window and try and take a look at what's all the costs and what's all the benefits over that three-year window. And usually once you get those numbers put together, it's rarely a hard decision. It's usually really obvious whether this is a good or a bad idea. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, kind of moving into um, architecture a little bit more, um, you know, I saw you, you kind of, all, all, you weren't always uh, an architect. Um, and it looks kind of like going into your work um, at uh, GE General Electric. That's kind of when you started shifting more into into that role. Um, what what kind of led that? Why um, become uh, a software architect versus more just kind of a developer, um, kind of staying more of that path? Um, some of it was situational, uh, just based on you know how my how my roles had developed, both at uh, GE and also at some of the previous roles I'd had before that, were kind of laying the groundwork for architecture. But um, it, it it was something that I grew into and started to as I was looking at systems more holistically and really understanding how the entire system worked. Um, it was a pretty natural path for me to take a look at, you know, and start getting into software architecture. But it was also situational of what was going on at within my team at that time and what the need was. And I got approached to do it. Um, and that was actually the transition from Centaur to GE was because I was asked mm -hmm. to take on the role of architect on the team I was a consultant on based on, you know, kind of the, the skills I'd obtained. Um, so it, it was kind of worked out really well for everyone involved because they got to see me in action for like a year and a half before... Um, before they actually made me an offer as an architect, rarely do you get that kind of an interview uh, for your potential employees. Yeah, it, so it, it just worked out that way. And then I started uh, developing myself in that direction and being very intentional about um, digging into design patterns and some architectural patterns. And, you know, originally I got very, uh, one of my, my colleagues at the time at Center kind of urged me towards digging into the some of the gang of four patterns and some of that work some of that those older books which still hold up fantastically mm -hmm. um, 
And uh, I started digging into that stuff and uh, kind of got to a point where um, I had an opportunity within my role to, to step back and say, well, what does the next generation architecture look like for this platform, which was a really large platform within GE and got to step back for many, many months, actually, and start to build that out and plan that out and build a roadmap. And uh, that really kind of leveled me up as an architect uh, and started was one of the building blocks. And then from there, I had the opportunity to do that numerous other times, actually, in my career. And then by that point, I got into consulting. And then I had the the great part about consulting is you get to see a lot of things. So I saw an awful lot of things that were done really well and an awful lot of things that were done really poorly and Mm -hmm. had the opportunity to nudge them in different directions um, as, as a consultant, kind of swoop in and say, you know, here's some great changes you could make. One of the things I did, I always did, that most consultants don't do is checking back in. Um, So long after I'm gone from a project, kind of swooping back around and talking to the team and saying, well, how did that actually turn out? Yeah. So I think one of one of the things we we fail at as consultants often is we swoop in, we get to play the hero, and then we get we get something running and then we move on to the next thing and do we don't know how that actually turned out. Did we build a disaster for you two years later, or did we build something that was brilliant? Um, going back and actually finding out where on that spectrum you landed so that you can learn from the experience. Otherwise, you could just um, kind of rinse, repeat the same mistakes over and over again and never realize it. And it's one of the negatives of being a consultant, in my opinion, is that you don't get to see something through many releases and many kind of iterations and cycles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think probably... I think probably a good salesperson in a consulting agency would follow back up, but I think as a developer, um, it's good to follow back up to see, you know, those ideas that you had of how things were going to run and how maintainable it was going to be and all that. Did that, did that actually happen the way that you thought it would? So. Right. Yeah. I, I found that to be very, very beneficial and, um, and helped me, become so much better um so otherwise i think I, I i think your your growth opportunities as a consultant are a bit limited um because you you're going to dip your toe into technologies but um i know i don't want to just be shallow in a lot of areas i'm, I'm okay with being shallow in a lot of areas but i want to be deep in the areas that i'm actually doing my work the majority of the time in, and, and you're now, you're only going to get so deep if you never actually see something through and understand how it turned out. So, yeah. and it's a really great excuse to build relationships as well that last beyond your yeah. consulting engagements. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, for someone who is maybe a developer, um, but kind of wants to transition to that architect role, um, but maybe where they're at, kind of the opportunities aren't really presenting themselves. What would you suggest? Um, should they try to work on stuff outside uh, of, of work in their free time? And, and if so, kind of maybe what would you suggest for, for doing that? Yeah, this is this is a really tough question, to be honest, because uh, I think it's a very personal thing. I, I think pe- different people learn in different ways. And when you, uh, a mistake that people often make is saying, well, this is how I did it. So this is how everybody should do it because this is the right way because this worked for me. Mm-hmm. And I, I see that so much in our field. And, but, uh, you know, I can tell you what worked for me. And what worked for me was uh, a lot of it happened outside of the workplace. Um, I, I, there's only so much opportunity you're going to get, whether you're um, on a team within a company uh, as a permanent employee, you're going to get very pigeonholed into the product you're working on. 
the software application, whatever it is that you happen to be working in, you're going to get pigeonholed both into that business domain and also into that technology stack. And your opportunities to grow beyond it are going to be kind of limited. And, you know, if you're aspiring to be an architect and you're working with an architect that doesn't have an interest in mentoring you or, uh, or, taking your feedback or collaborating with you, you're probably not going to get much experience there. So I know a few times in my career, I've done rather large projects outside of the workplace that are personal projects. And a couple of them have been building, uh, uh, testing out architectures and kind of building things that were very intentional to try and learn how to build an architecture that scales or build an architecture that's reliable or understand, uh, you know, digging into Azure, for example, back when um, I wanted to get involved in Azure for so long, for so many years and never could get the opportunity internally. So finally, I just did a project inside of Azure on my own, a really large one that was intentionally scaled too big uh, just for the purpose of because I wanted to learn the tooling. And uh, it was a disaster and a mess. And I learned so much that the next project I did wasn't a disaster and wasn't a mess. And that project actually turned into a big part of my resume when I did go and move on to a role that actually gave me the opportunity to do work in Azure. Um, you know, being able to, I could. I could actually show stuff and say, yes, this is something I've done. Here's why I did this. Here's why this adds scalability. Here's why this adds reliability. Here's a mistake that people often make. Being able to talk about that stuff in that interview for the first, for your first job in Azure, you know, made it really easy to, you know, be a slam dunk Mm -hmm. to, to get the role, even though I hadn't done anything in the corporate world yet in Azure. And, uh, you know, and that was years ago, but it, it was, um, and similarly, when I uh, was really exploring microservices and trying to understand, you know, uh, how to, I, I, I think it's still an art form is understanding uh, when to use a microservice versus whether to do, uh, um, you know, something that's a little bit more monolithic and finding where on the spectrum you should lie. Digging into that on my own was the only way I was going to learn about that and learn some of the principles there and how, how to get that done appropriately. And, yeah. um, you know, it, that was another thing I did on the side on my own and learned that way and then was able to take that, bring that into my workplace and say, hey, look, guys, this is how I think this should be. Here's a, a working demo of yeah. something that works and let's start building from there. Uh, but that's something that's worked for me. I, I, I've talked to other developers that their approach is to change jobs, right? They don't have time outside, so they're just going to go and change jobs to something and maybe take something a bit more junior than they are just so that they can get into the space they wanna be in. That, that's a valid approach as well. And I'm sure there's numerous other ways to tackle it. You brought up microservices, which is, mm-hmm. you know, a buzzword. It may be a little bit older of a buzzword now, but, yep. um, you know, it got me thinking about um, kind of over-architecting systems, um, you know, especially people who are very technology-focused. Um, they they hear all this different stuff, you know, Microsoft's promoting things right. or or the open source world promoting things. And so they just want to use it as much as possible. Um, but sometimes you just have a basic, you know, CRUD or forms over data app that really doesn't need that much architecture. Um, right. How do you avoid uh, over architecting a system? Um, honestly, I think the best way to avoid it is by doing it a couple of times and learning your lesson the hard way. Um, I've, I've, that that's actually it's really interesting you brought that up in the, the scope of microservices because I think the the time in my life or in my career that I was digging into microservices and figuring out how to pull apart the monolith and uh, a lot of those things that that was also a time when I was guilty of that over architecture and 
you know, one of the hard lessons I learned is about pragmatism and about building something that's appropriate for your team. And I think this is probably the one of the last big architecture lessons that I learned was building something that's appropriate for your team is really, really important. Is you can build something that's actually pragmatic and a great fit for the company that you're in. But if when you look around you and look at the developers that you're working with, if it's all new technology that's far beyond the scope of your team, have you built something that's really appropriate to solve the problem? Or have you built a new problem in that now you you have months of ramp up time for your team? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it, it's not just about uh, not over-architecting, but it's knowing your audience. And you do have an, an audience when you're an architect. Your audience is your fellow team members and making sure that what you're building is appropriate for them. Uh, because not every single person on your team is going to want to learn um, all of the latest and greatest, I shouldn't say latest and greatest, but all of the greatest design patterns and learn to apply them brilliantly, nor are they going to want to learn 15 new tech uh, tech stack tools that you find really handy. And mm-hmm. yeah, so I, I think uh, there, there's a dose of that too, of uh, knowing your audience, but yeah, coming back to your point is, yeah, over-architecting is a huge temptation, and it's really easy to say that, well, I want I want this level of scale, and it's got to be like this. I, I had a client a few years back that came to me and said, we want five nines of reliability in this thing we were deploying in Azure, right? And totally doable within Azure, but really, really, really expensive if you've yeah. ever mapped out something that that aims at five nines. And so I mapped it out exactly how they wanted. And you know, we, we started talking about the expense and, and I realized that their current deployment in their own data center, as they were looking to also move this out of their own data center, did not even have three nines of reliability. So I started digging into it and it was the requirement of five nines came from somebody had read something somewhere and thought that that was the best practice. And once I dug into it, I found out that no, if we just gave them three nines, they would be in a world better place than they were already at. And they would uh, get into a much more realistic you know, cost and so that that's a, a great example of where some almost some over architecture happened because how I was going to get them those nines was by scaling out into multiple regions and having very sophisticated networking set up so that things are auto failing over all over the place. And because in Azure there's nothing that just has five nines. You need to you need to develop that yourself based on the building blocks and the reliability that those already have for you. Um, so that's a, that's a great example, but others I've seen is, you know, people, people building for a scale that's just not necessary. You know, everybody wants to build as though they're Google yeah. and, and, you know, you might be building for five users, uh, that are going to hit your stuff. So why are you building as though you're building something that's going to have a million users hanging it a month? And I can tell you why, because it's fun. Uh, at least yeah. <laughs> as a technologist, that's why I would do it because it's a lot of fun to build stuff yeah. uh, and build it really well. Uh, at least for me, it is. Uh, maybe not everyone, but yeah. you got to sometimes push that temptation back and just do what's right for the product, the customer, your company, whatever it happens to be. Yeah. And sometimes that's not building the best thing you could build, but building something that's pragmatic and appropriate. Yeah, I know on the uh, Slack chat um, for the that conference, um, one of the guys um, was saying a lot of people don't actually need the scale that they need. If they were to just optimize their code, they could scale down quite a bit. Um, and you know, he brought up the case of using like an ORM that's just using a lot of uh, processing and, and memory that wasn't really needed if you optimize the code better. Yeah, that that is very true. I've seen that. I had a, I had a client a couple of years back that had, um, they had the system and it, it was SQL Server and a bunch of PaaS stuff within Azure and you know, the, the problem they came to us with is, well, they, their costs were going through the roof. 
And the reason their costs were going through the roof is because some of the queries were so terrible mm-hmm. that they were um, that they were they kept having to crank up the SQL Server capacity, or I should say Azure Azure SQL c- capacity. Mm-hmm. And when I started taking a look at it, they were sitting there in zero percent usage for the entire month except they would have these bursts where they would burst up to 99% usage because they would do this query that was taking uh, a minute and a half to complete, and it was just poorly optimized. So they were ending up, they they actually got to a point where they were spending their entire yearly budget every month for for Azure. And the, the real problem was they needed to go back and clean up some of these bad queries. And once they did that, they weren't able to just notch down a little bit. They were able to notch down to like 5% of the capacity that they had allocated. Yeah. Well, and then that's also not optimized very well, because if you did, for some reason, have to have a spike, you know, you can have it so that it scales up, but then scales back down. So that you're yes. not paying for that cost the whole time. So. Yeah, although at that time that wasn't uh, oh, yeah. a lot of the, the configurability in Azure SQL was not there at that point. It was more of a you were buying this much, and it didn't. I don't think even scaling options were there yet. But anyway, yeah. Getting into kind of resources for people, you know, any sort of like recommendations for good places to you know, get material to, to learn from, tutorials, or even like certifications to get. One that comes to mind, something I'm, I'm thinking about getting is the Azure Architect uh, certification. So anything kind of along those lines that, that you would suggest? Boy, I'm, I've never been much of a certification kind of guy, actually. I... I, I've gotten a number of them over the years, but I've never felt like they brought much value to me aside from resume fodder. Um, but, uh, you know, sometimes the act of getting the, the certification can be really helpful in helping drive your learning. The, yeah. the problem I usually have with certifications is what it really drives is it drives memorization of a bunch of stuff that you will forget a couple weeks after your certification test. Um, that you, you know, I there's probably numerous tests I could go just take and pass because of real world experience, but there's many others where I would have to sit there and memorize a book and the being able to go and take and pass it uh, without studying, that would prove something. Uh, going and, and memorizing a book for a week or two and then taking it, I don't feel like that proves anything because uh, we're, we're long past that that part of my career where where it was really what you knew. Now it's it's being able to put your hands on the right facts and understanding the big picture concepts to be able to apply those facts. That to me is what's more important. But anyway, yeah, there's lots of great certifications available from Microsoft. And, uh, but yeah, I would urge people don't go and memorize stuff, actually go and try and learn the stuff when you're doing it. As far as resources, um, I don't really have any great suggestions there. I mean, there's, there's always plural site that they've been around forever and they have great resources. I, I think, uh, Udemy, um, is, is a great one. The, the, the home of the, the course that's always on sale at 90% off, um, <laughs> You know, that's their, their entire website seems to always be 90% off, but, um, I've consumed a few of their courses and the quality is actually pretty good on a lot of their stuff. I mean, some of it's terrible, but, uh, a lot of it's really good and there's good reviews around the stuff. So I think that's a great source, but you know, I, that's, that's one way that people learn. Not everybody learns that way. Some people are much better off uh, going and just saying, I'm going to learn this technology and picking a small project to work on. Another great way is finding an open source project to contribute to. Um, Then you're getting a double win. You're learning something and you're out there contributing to an open source project, which is always always uh, uh something i love to do whenever i have the opportunity i try to be a contributor but yeah but well, and then also uh volunteer opportunities um some of those are open source but some may not be um and so those um 
you know, there's different uh, websites for that too to, to get involved. So yes, yep, all all great ways. Yeah. Um, anything that you're looking forward to in 2022 here? Um, any like kind of new technologies, new services in Azure, um, or even not necessarily related to the Microsoft space, just like cool tech that you might be interested in? Oh yeah. Um, well. So one of the things I'm really looking forward to is getting back in person for some conferences. Um, I'm I'm hoping to speak at that conference this year, but even if I don't speak, I'm going to be there this year in person. Um, really looking forward to that. I uh, always have loved that conference. Uh, well, it, at least as long as I've been going. Um, and it's to me that that conference where it really excels is the uh, open spaces section. So if you do have the opportunity to go, I know I missed this the first year or two I went. There's a section called open spaces where people get to just talk about what they want to talk about. And it's usually small groups of five or 10 people, but it's just amazing conversation happens in there. There's a great opportunity to pick people's brains. And um, I've found that there's always somebody that knows a ton more about a topic I'm interested in than I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, every time I've, I've, I've tried to find somebody for something, I've always found some great, uh, great people that know so much about particular topics. So I love open spaces, but there's also the camaraderie and just the hanging out with people and getting to connect with people you haven't seen in a long time. So I'm really looking forward to that. Um, Technology-wise, I'm really interested in what's developing right now in the mixed reality space. Um, I feel like there was... We, we got the HoloLens, I think it's been five years now, I want to say. Five years ago, we got the HoloLens. It was amazing. It was it's breathtaking. Already. It was innovative. It was it was so cool. But then that was kind of it. Um, yeah. the, not much happened with it. Um, the, the team took a very enterprise tack. Mm-hmm. with uh with the hololens and kind of left the consumers behind although when they initially presented it it was almost all consumer use cases they were demoing so i i i kind of lost interest in that space for that reason and i but i've been i've been participating and active in the space but just uh not not super engaged and so some of the things that are coming this year that i think are exciting um, are not from Microsoft actually. Um, there's the um, the the new Oculus Quest products, or I guess I I guess they're Meta Quest now. But um, <laughs> yeah. so those new products. So there's there's a Pro headset that's coming out, and there's I don't think it's named yet, but what should be the Oculus Quest Three? I I don't think they're planning on calling it that, but whatever they call it. Um, and what's interesting about both of those products is they're going to have uh, color cameras and going to have that mixed reality type of view. So that stuff is available now in the Oculus Quest 2, but it's a black and white camera, which makes it only really neat for demos, in my opinion. It's not really practical for use. So I'm really interested to see if what they bring to the table there will be practical for some real world mixed reality applications i i've been of a notion that hybrid is really where the space is going to take off uh because the the mixed reality headsets that we have are really really limited you know you have this really small field of view and you've got you're wearing a computer on your head so you've got heat problems which cause them to not have enough compute and you have battery problems and a lot of those issues are uh, much, uh, much smaller issues if you look at a hybrid type of situation. So I think um, what Oculus Quest potentially is doing there could be really exciting. But if they don't nail it, there's a company in France called the Lynx, L-Y-N-X. Okay. So they they have a product that should be hitting the market in, I think, the summer of 2022. And you can you can look them up and find them on YouTube, and maybe you can even link something um, yeah. when you post this. But um, 
they what they're doing is really really cool they are very focused on the idea of having cameras and having a vr uh, view of the real world so that you can inject holograms but because they're doing it with cameras you're looking at something where you're getting close to a 90 degree field of view um, so basically, you can almost see your entire field of view of the real world and have holograms in it, where if you've ever used a HoloLens, it's like looking at the world through a postage stamp. Yeah, it's um, pretty narrow. It's, it's very, very narrow, and it really limits what you can do in the experience. But so they're doing that, and they're they're very focused on doing it with, they're doing it with Android hardware. So you're basically okay. wearing almost an Android phone on your head. Uh, which gives them uh, actually a lot of horsepower because some of the GPU acceleration that you find in modern uh, Android hardware is really, really impressive. Um, and they're, they're doing it with a new, uh, a new chip. They'll be the first using the chip from Qualcomm. Um, that has, is designed for this particular use case. So it handles a lot of things. And the other thing they did is they strapped a, a leap motion, which yep. if you're familiar with that device, so that gives you very high fidelity uh, motion capture of understanding fingers and hand motions and that stuff. So they've built this all into one package. They've got a nice SDK that they're building on top of it. And it's something that you can target with, with Unity or Unreal. So they're kind of building this beautiful package and their price point is like the 500 to $1,000 range for all of this. So I think if they, if they nail that, they'll have, they'll be a real consumer level product. And I think they could potentially break through and have start to have that killer app or killer apps for it. It'll still be a big, ugly headset that you're wearing, which is a big problem for this space. <laughs> Yep. But it will be something that will be able to do practical applications that are useful in the real world. And that's a huge part of the problem, in my in my opinion, anyway. Um, so I'm really excited about uh, what's going on in the mixed reality space. And yeah. then looking uh, back at Microsoft, um, the Microsoft Mesh initiative, which was announced last year, but really hasn't seen anything, at least publicly, available. and so we're expecting to see a lot happen in that space this year. Nothing I can publicly talk about, but there's a lot of stuff that's that's going to be happening there. And I think there'll be some public, uh, really cool public stuff available. And I think that is, to me, that is the, the vision of what Facebook, now Meta, is presenting themselves as. I feel yeah. like Microsoft is actually developing that and has a big head start on it. And Mesh could be the beginning of that platform, or at was, least the beginning of one of them. Yeah. Is Mesh um, that kind of like the virtual reality, but mixed into like Teams? I'm trying to remember. Yeah, that's, I... uh, that's kind of the spin that it's taken on in recent months. But the, if you go back and look at the original uh, videos for it, um, I think it was last year's Ignite where they kind of unveiled it. The, the, the real concept of it is that we could have telepresence where we're, both, we're all interacting in the same mixed reality space. So we might have a bunch of holograms that are right in front of me and they're right in front of you. And I would see a visualization of you standing there around those holograms. Mm -hmm. And the idea being that we could interact with them together and be able to, so basically we could be collaborating and working together, even though we might be, you know, a thousand miles apart from each other. So I think that's a, that's a really powerful use case. And um, so seeing how that develops, I think is really exciting this year. And I'm really hoping to get something live. I know I've got all sorts of clients that are really excited about the possibilities. And I'm hoping something is starts to become available, at least in preview form, that we can start doing some, some prototypes with that. One last question. Um, how do you balance all this stuff? Because it seems like you got a ton going on. Um, you know, how do you, how do you, uh, balance, you know, work and then also the MVP stuff and trying to learn all these new technologies and, and interactive community and all that. 
It's very challenging, to be honest. Uh, it's it's often too much, and you have to kind of pick and choose. Um, and part of it is that um, in my current role in my at Octavian, part of my role is actually being part of the community. So I, I kind of weave the two together uh, a little bit. But there still is, yeah, there's always an effort to find things to do that are positive contribution in the community. I know this year I'm trying to kind of change a little bit what I'm doing in the community. Um, and I'm kind of backing away from talks, partially because of how much I don't enjoy doing the online versions of them, but also partially because I feel like I want to do something that's different. And so this year I'm really focusing in on doing, uh, getting involved in nonprofits and helping them um with some of the technology stuff and also um starting to take a look i'm trying to trying to figure out how i can do kind of a blog series but dig into some deep technical topics another thing i i found that i don't get too excited about with talks sometimes is a lot of times uh people want 101 level talks mm-hmm. where i want to go really really deep on stuff and i rarely get to do that in a talk and it gets kind of boring for the speaker to give the same 101 talk over and over again. Yeah. So, but by doing that, I, I feel like I can kind of weave that into some of the work that I'm doing in the real world. So I guess to, to answer your question, it's a little bit of trying to figure out how to, how to weave those things together and actually have one of them feed the other and not try to build like these three separate silos that I'm working on at all times. Yeah. Cool. Uh, anything that you want to plug? Boy, so I'll, I'll plug the Octavian Technology Group. So please check us out, uh, check out our website. And, um, you know, we're, like I said, we're really focused on kind of, uh, figuring out how to, uh, help your company versus just being uh, somebody that's going to go do something. We're going to do something that's going to make a difference within your company. So check us out. Uh, we'd uh, we'd love to talk to anybody that's out there that's hearing this. Um, I'll plug that conference. Fantastic conference, kind of local to the Midwest area, but we draw people nationally to that conference. Um, I've often I've been a speaker, I've been a sponsor, and I've been an attendee, and it's fun to be there in all three of those different roles. So definitely check that out. Um, yeah, I think those are the, the two things I'd like to, to plug. Cool. Uh, so yeah, thanks for um, joining me. I really appreciate it. Uh, honored to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun to talk about uh, kind of what's going on in in my my consulting life my mvp life and uh my architecture life so really enjoyed talking to you Thanks for joining me on our trip down the Coding Canal. You can find me on all social media platforms at the Coding Canal. Please hit the like button if you like this show. Leave a comment if you're excited about this topic. And subscribe so you can get more episodes like this one as soon as they're released.